It was Christmas time in the college town of Normal, Illinois. Many students had already left by December 22nd, 1975, gone home on break to celebrate the holiday season with their family. During their time off, they may have caught a screening of Black Christmas, a 1974 slasher film that was still doing some screenings in December of 1975. The film focused on a group of young women in a sorority being stalked and murdered by an unknown killer. Out in the real world, though, a horrific crime in the same vein would be committed. 21-year-old Carol Rofstad had stayed behind in normal to work some extra shifts at her job to earn a little extra cash for Christmas presents. Unfortunately, she would fall victim to a brutal attack just steps outside of her Delta Zeta sorority house. An attack that lacked any apparent sign of motive or reason that would leave a family who rather than celebrate would have to spend their holiday in mourning. This is Midwest Mystery Files, Episode 23, The Vicious Murder of Carol Rofstad. Hello everyone, and welcome to Midwest Mystery Files. I'm your host, Jeremiah, with just a few quick things before we start. Midwest Mystery Files is a true crime podcast focused on missing and murdered cases within the Midwestern region of the United States. I can be found on all major podcast platforms, as well as on YouTube with the late episodes. Social media and contact information will be listed at the end of the episode. If you wish to support the podcast and help fund article and record searches, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and voting rights, I encourage you to check out my Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash midwestmysteryfiles. If you're not looking for perks, but want to help me out just one time, I am on Venmo at MidwestPod. I am currently sitting at two patrons, so I would like to thank Laura and Teresa for their help. Now, on to today's case. Carol Ann Rofsted was born on March 10th, 1954, to Robert and Lillian Rofsted. I couldn't find much on her early life, but as far as I can tell, she was born and raised in Elk Grove Village, just 20 miles north of Chicago, where she attended school. She had one brother, Robert Jr., and one sister, Laura. Her father, Robert Sr., was the owner of the Accurate Carpet Measuring Company of Chicago. Upon graduating high school, Carol would make the journey 132 miles south to Normal, Illinois, where she attended Illinois State University and majored in psychology. During her time at ISU, she would join the Delta Zeta sorority and would eventually move into the sorority house located at 602 South Fell Street in Normal. I couldn't find much else about her time at the college, but articles from the time describe Carol as being an easygoing, well-liked, private person. In July of 1974, Carol would have a traumatic encounter when, in the early hours of July 16th, Carol would awaken to find an intruder in her room. After a brief struggle, which resulted in Carol having a broken nose, the intruder fled after Carol managed to scream to alert the other women in the house. Police would later find that the intruder had cut the phone line before forcing entry through the back door of the Delta Zeta house before heading to Carol's room. It was unclear if Carol was the intended target or if that was the first room the intruder tried. To this day, he has yet to be identified. Following the traumatic experience, Carol would return to her normal routine, entering her junior year and, by all accounts, living the life of a normal college student. In the fall of 1975, 
Carol would begin her senior year, most likely with the big ambition and goals for the years that would follow her graduation from Illinois State University. Soon, though, December would come and classes would let out for Christmas break, with the majority of students returning home to celebrate the holidays with friends and family. On Monday, December 22nd, 1975, Carol was still in normal with plans to head back to Elk Grove in the following days. She had stayed behind to work extra shifts at her job at Hex, a woman's apparel store, in order to earn some extra money for Christmas gifts. According to the Illinois State Vedette, the store manager would tell police that Carol left the store located at 104 North Street with a female friend at 8.30 p.m. and headed to the Welcome Inn Cellar Bar next door. The friend would later tell police that her and Carol were only in the bar to look for some friends and left after only a few minutes. At this point, her and Carol parted ways and Carol headed back to the Delta Zeta sorority house on foot, what would have been a 5-10 to 10 minute walk. The next day, December 23rd, a passerby was walking past the Delta Zeta house at approximately 12pm when they heard soft moans coming from the side yard of the house. Upon further investigation, the passerby would find Carol Rofstad. She was unconscious and had been severely beaten. Emergency services would arrive on the scene, and Carol was taken to the Brokaw Hospital in Normal, before being transferred to St. Francis Hospital in Peoria, Illinois. Once at St. Francis, doctors would do all they could to save Carol, including emergency brain surgery. However, despite proving to be one extremely tough lady, by initially surviving the brutal attack she faced, Carol Ann Rofstad would pass away at 4.40 p.m. on December 24, 1975. In the wake of Carol's tragic death, normal police would waste a little time at attempting to bring Carol's killer to justice. But unfortunately, they were stuck with more questions than answers. The coroner's jury would conclude Carol's cause of death as being a skull fracture and brain injuries sustained from two to four blows above the right ear by a blunt instrument. Carol was found disrobed from the waist down, but it was never fully determined if sexual assault occurred. Carol's purse was found at the scene with money as well as Carol's keys and an 18-inch piece of railroad tie with blood on it. This would become the assumed murder weapon. Two women who had been in the sorority house until 11.30 a.m. on December 23rd would report that they heard nothing out of the ordinary outside the house. On January 5th of 1976, it would be revealed by investigators that one witness had come forward on the day of Carol's death, December 24th, 1975, to state that he had seen Carol Rofstad on the evening of December 22nd in the company of two men. The witness would report that on December 22nd, between 10 and 10.15 p.m., he was passing the Delta Zeta house, presumably on foot, as he stated to be 20 to 30 feet away, but it has never been specified, when he saw Carol Rofstad outside the house with two men. The witness would state that one man, who was closest to Carol, was holding what appeared to him to be a club, and Carol appeared to be standing under her own power, but was hunched over. The witness would tell investigators that he did not report the incident at the time, as he simply assumed that it was a couple of college kids messing around, and not anything of concern. I personally think it's odd to make that assumption given you have two men, one of which is armed, and you have a young woman hunched over, but I digress. The witness would only be able to get a thorough look at the man holding the weapon, and on January 10th, 1976, 
a composite sketch would be released. The man was described as being a white male, 6 foot to 6 foot 3 inches tall, 200 to 225 pounds, with a mustache and short, full beard. The man looked to be between 18 and 25 years old and was wearing a knee-length coat and a dark knit stocking cap. The club he was seen holding is assumed by investigators to be the piece of bloody railroad tie found at the scene. No sketch was ever made of the second man, but the Illinois State Police have him listed as a white male, standing 5 foot 4 at 180 pounds with white hair and an age range of 18 to 35. Investigators also noted that the witness did see a car parked at the scene. The street was a no parking zone, so it was strongly believed that the vehicle belonged to the assailants. The description of the vehicle was dispersed to police, but not to the public. The make and model was quite common, and investigators were concerned too many calls would be made on vehicle sightings, and it would ultimately hinder the investigation. To coincide with the release of the sketch, fraternities at Illinois State would raise money to contribute to a reward fund to be paid out to anyone who provided information that led to the arrest and conviction of the culprit. In a March 1976 article from the Vedette, normal police detective Dave Norton would state that the sketch had brought in about 35 suspects that would be investigated, but so far no solid leads had been found. Norton would go on to state the investigation was also being hindered by other factors, such as no clear-cut motive, and the fact that there was an approximate 90-minute window where Carol's whereabouts are unknown. Carol left her friend around 8.35, which would have put her getting back home at around 8.45. However, the other two girls who were still staying at the sorority would note that they had not heard Carol come home. She wasn't seen by anyone until the time between 10 and 10.15 p.m., when the witness saw Carol with the two men. Police theorized that wherever Carol was, seeing that her keys were found outside, she was most likely returning to the Delta Zeta house when she was met by the killer. With normal police detective sergeant Dan Sadler telling the vedette, quote, she probably had the keys in her hand, ready to unlock the door when she was grabbed. Sadler then theorized that she ran to the side of the house in an attempt to escape, dropping her keys along the way. It's also noted that the positioning of the car, which were never told the exact position, indicated that Carol could have possibly been in the car with her assailants before the attack, and there was a chance that she knew them and had spent the unaccounted time with them. Sadler stressed that any information that could fill the time gap could possibly be enough to help move the case along. It was stated, too, that the time between being seen around 10 p.m. and being found at noon the next day wasn't fully accounted for. While the state of Carol's skin indicated she had most likely been in the cold temps, which did get down to 21 degrees Fahrenheit, for about 14 hours, cops who drove through the alley behind the sorority house about seven to eight times that night never saw any sign of Carol. Although it was noted that there were bushes that could have blocked their view, which had since been removed. Given what we know so far, I imagine she was most likely there the whole time, but for the sake of thoroughness, I did want to touch on the fact that she might not have been there since it was something investigators noted. In the case of motive, Detective Norton would state that while robbery may have been a motive, it seemed unlikely, as Carol's purse did still have money in it. 
although he did note Carol may have had something else on her, such as jewelry, that may have been the target. Sexual assault was also a possible motive, but was considered unlikely as well. While Carol was found disrobed from the waist down, it was also December, and temperatures were down to around 21 degrees that night. Detectives also cited that while not always the case, statistically, rape and sexual assault is an act generally committed by one individual. Norton did note that there was evidence that he could not release that discounted the rape theory as well, and theorized that Carol may have been disrobed to distract officers from the real reason that Carol was attacked. Detective Norton would also state that the attack on Carol in her bedroom in July of 1974 had been relooked at, but no solid links between that attack and Carol's attack in December 22nd had been made. He would close out the motives, stating that the attack could have possibly been out of panic, such as a robbery that Carol interrupted, or if the two men were in some sort of drug-addled state. Essentially, any situation where murder wasn't ever in consideration, but unforeseen circumstances led to the fatal attack. Not much movement would happen in the public eye for over a year, until, in June of 1977, when it was revealed that a man who was being detained in the Macon County Jail had confessed to murdering Carol Rofstad. According to the Vedette and the Bloomington Pantograph, in May of that year, 39-year-old David Whitner was arrested in Decatur, Illinois after a failed purse-snatching incident where he attempted to steal a purse from a 74-year-old woman. Whitmer, who was dismissed from mental health facility the day before the purse-snatching and had a 25-year history of mental illness, told investigators in early June that he had attempted to steal Carol Rofstad's purse on the evening of December 22, 1975. He stated that when she resisted, he became enraged and struck Carol with a nearby board. He was then spooked off by a passing car, which was why Carol's purse and money was still on her when she was found. Investigators would spend three weeks investigating if it was plausible that Whitner could have been the culprit. Upon finding that he was a resident of Bloomington, which sits right next to normal, and that he hadn't been in any sort of facility at the time of the murder, officials, or more specifically, McLean County State's Attorney Ron Dozer, charged Whitmer with Carol's murder. Right off the bat, questions would begin to be raised as to if this was the right call, beginning with the fact that Whitmer's mother told the Bloomington Pantograph that he had never even left the house on the evening of December 22, 1975, Whitmer also apparently bore absolutely no resemblance to the man the witness had seen that night Carol was attacked. Attorney Dozer would explain this away by claiming that he believed the witness saw something, quote, entirely different, which occurred about an hour after Rothstad was attacked. He added that the witness was not sure which house the three were in front of or what the genders of the three men were. Not sure how you go from stating the witness saw a male with a beard to not being sure what the gender was, but I'll save that for later when we discuss theories. Dozer would go on to state that Whitmer confessed because he was looking to return to the Chester Mental Health Hospital in Chester, Illinois, a place that David Whitmer had been admitted to several times in the past. This would be corroborated by Whitmer's mother, who told the Pantograph that it was the only reason David had confessed. She even alleged that he had told her himself he hadn't committed the murder, and just wanted to be admitted to the hospital. She would then accuse Dozer of badgering her son, most likely to ensure he didn't recant his confession. Dozer would go on to state that he believed Whitmer would be found unfit to stand trial, 
and added if he did stand trial, he probably wouldn't be convicted on grounds that he was insane at the time of the crime. He also noted that prior to the confession, normal police had centered their investigation on another suspect, but there was never enough evidence to charge him. In light of Whitmer's confession, the investigation of the other suspect would be dropped. According to a July 12, 1977 issue of The Vedette, it was stated that Whitmer was found unfit to stand trial in the purse-snatching incident for which he was initially arrested. It was stated that he would soon have a similar evaluation for the Rofstad trial. In an August 22nd issue of The Vedette, it would be revealed by normal police detective sergeant Dan Sadler that the suspect being investigated prior to David Whitmer's confession was a former Illinois State student. Sadler stated that investigators questioned between 30 and 50 students who knew the suspect. Some had even dated him. Sadler was so confident they were on to the right person, he had the guy's picture tacked on his bulletin board. He declined to comment on his thoughts about Whitmer's guilt. The article would go on to state that the case was in, quote, psychiatric limbo, as thus far, two separate psychologists who had examined Whitmer disagreed on whether he was fit to stay in trial or not. At that juncture, a third psychologist had been agreed upon by both the defense and the prosecution to provide another opinion. A September 7th Vidette article would report that the third psychologist, Dr. James McClure Jr., had found David Whitmer unfit to stay in trial. In a six-page report, Dr. McClure would state, quote, The subject's ability to think, reason, plan, appreciate his environment, etc., has been so badly and permanently impaired by the devastating effects of his chronic psychotic mental illness that he is completely unfit to understand the nature of any proceedings against him or to cooperate in any meaningful way with his defense attorney and must be considered, in my opinion, to be completely unfit at this time to stand trial. The article would also note that the one psychologist to find Whitmer competent to stand trial did not believe that Whitmer had committed the murder. It was at this juncture that Whitmer would be transferred to the Chester Mental Health Hospital until a time that he may be found competent to stand trial. That time would never come. In December of 1980, three years after David Whitmer initially confessed to Carol Rofstad's murder, McLean County State Attorney Ron Dozer dropped the charges against Whitmer. Whitmer had failed many competency tests at this point, and according to the vedette, Dozer would tell the press that he believed it was probable that Whitmer committed the murder, but he did not think it could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And just like that, normal detectives were back at square one after three years. If you remember the suspect that was being looked at prior to Whitmer's confession, Detective Sergeant Dan Sadler would tell the vedette in December of 1980 that investigators had actually continued to investigate the suspect, but he was ultimately cleared a year earlier after passing a polygraph test. It was also stated in the article that many of the members of the Delta Zeta sorority were of the belief that this man was responsible. At this point, Carol's case goes quiet for quite some time, with only mentions of her murder in pantograph articles discussing unsolved area cult cases. The case would always remain open, though, as throughout these articles, whichever detective was in charge at the time would ensure the press that tips were still being followed and the case had at no point been considered closed. In February of 1996, Detective Sergeant Dan Sadler, who was now retired, would tell the pantograph, quote, 
The Rofstad case was completely unsolved and is still open. There was a lot of work put into it, and nothing was ever determined to anyone's satisfaction, as far as I know. Of course, there's some feeling of frustration because we never arrived at a conclusion on it. A lot of interviews and leads turned out to be wild goose chases. To my knowledge, every lead that came about was fully investigated. He would go on to infer that there was always still hope. Someone who recognized the man in the composite sketch, drawn in 1976, was still out there, stating, quote, Maybe 20 years down the road, somebody would feel more comfortable in coming forward than they did at the time. We don't know how accurate it is. It was the best we could come up with at the time. Of course, though, continued investigation with no resolution would do little to ease the heartache of Carol's family who in 1996 had spent 20 long years without answers as to who took their daughter and sister from them. A wound that was fresh every day, with Robert Rofstad, Carol's father, telling the pantograph, quote, Every once in a while, in a shopping center, we'll see a girl who looks like Carol. It brings back memories. She was a pretty girl. She had everything going for her. We miss her every day, and we think of her. This article as well as a series of other articles ran in 1996, would garner a small amount of movement. In a November 3, 2000 Pantograph article, focused on the 25th anniversary of Carol's murder, investigators would state that the 1996 articles did garner a single phone call, and through that call, they were able to uncover enough information to request interviews with two suspects. The Pantograph reported that the first suspect, who police believed may have been the attacker, and bore a strong resemblance to the man in the composite sketch, was a suspect early in the investigation, but there was never enough evidence to charge him. Normal police lieutenant Tony Daniels would state that the primary suspect now lived in Tennessee, while the man, who may have been the accomplice, still lived in the normal Bloomington area. He would go on to tell the pantograph, quote, It's a puzzle that is missing a couple of pertinent pieces that we need to connect together. We're looking for someone who overheard the suspect implicate himself, or any physical evidence that would link the suspects to the crime. Lieutenant Daniels would go on to state that he intended to contact the FBI to submit physical evidence to determine if DNA or fingerprints could be lifted off of evidence through techniques that had not existed in the late 70s. In early 2001, normal police would send off physical evidence to the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C., Police Chief Walt Clark would tell the Pantograph in a September 5, 2001 article that lab technicians were unable to find any DNA evidence, but did find a single legible fingerprint using state-of-the-art technology. Unfortunately, though, the fingerprint did not match anyone in the FBI database, and Chief Clark would concede that police did not have the fingerprints of their two main suspects. So the case was ultimately still in limbo. In 2008, a former Chicago homicide detective would add some fresh eyes to the case, only not in an official capacity. George Siebel, who established Morton College's Institution for Cold Case Solution in Cicero, Illinois in 2004, began looking at the case independently with his student staff members. Siebel would tell the Pantograph in a May 10, 2008 article that he had found the case on the Illinois State Police webpage for unsolved cases. He was also already somewhat familiar with the case, 
as his Chicago Police Investigative Unit had done some investigation of a suspect in the early years of Carroll's case. Siebel would go on to state, quote, I think the case is eminently solvable, as long as the truth comes out. It doesn't matter who does it. We have a suspect, they have a couple suspects, and hopefully we can find a couple crumbs to send to police. Siebel would state that he and his crew came up with a suspect after speaking with several people who had known Carol Rofstad. He would tell the Pantograph that the name of one man with a, quote, rich history of violence toward females kept coming up. Ultimately, Siebel and his students would conduct over 250 interviews and give the normal police over 50 pages of documents. Normal police would neither confirm or deny if any information had been given to them by Siebel. Since this time, there has been no more major movements or updates with Carol's case, with only the occasional news story focused on unsolved cases being ran to keep Carol's name out there. Between so close yet so far away suspects, a seemingly false confession, and even independent investigation, Carol Rostad's case unfortunately seems as cold as the night she was brutally attacked. We're left now with only theories. This is a difficult case to look at without going overboard speculating on theories. All theories are obviously a bit of speculation, but I always try to base what I say around what's known by me and the general public, as well as what law enforcement presents. Law enforcement has stayed fairly tight-lipped on this case as far as suspects go, which is fine. It's always better to protect the integrity of investigation than let us know information willy-nilly. We'll go ahead and jump right into David Whitmer. For all intents and purposes, I don't think anyone believes this guy is guilty. But since he was a central part of the investigation for several years, I do want to touch on him quick. David was a clearly troubled individual and it's unfortunate that he felt the need to take some extreme measures to find himself somewhere that he felt taken care of. It seemed clear from the start that there wasn't a lot to go on. One could say a mother casting doubt, as his did, is just a mother protecting her son. However, over the years, investigators, including Dan Sadler, who worked the case early on, have expressed doubt in later articles on the case that there was ever a solid reason to charge him from my own standpoint, I thought it seemed strange that nowhere in Whitmer's account did he explain why Carol was disrobed from the waist down. And from how he said it, he only hit her once with a board, running away as soon as a car came past. A lot of it didn't make sense. Most of what happened with David Whitmer seems to land on the back of McLean County Attorney Ron Dozer. Even he didn't seem fully sure of Whitmer's guilt, and after dropping the charges, seemed to allude that there was always some doubt they could prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. He also made claims that the original witness statement was incorrect, a claim only he ever made, and every other investigator has stuck to the original story. I don't want to insult Dozer's character too much, as I never lived in his county, and anything I've read about him seems to allude to him being a well-liked and well-respected in the community. However, in 1976, he was in his new position, so, we could easily judge him as wanting to charge an innocent man to make a name for himself by prosecuting such a heinous crime right off the bat, or he could have easily been a little too sure of himself and possibly made an almost tragic mistake. I'll leave it up to you to draw your own conclusions. Outside of Whitmer, there seems to be one or two suspects that police have looked at over the years 
but have never managed to gather concrete evidence on. Investigators admitted there was a man they were looking at prior to Whitmer's investigation, and they continued to look at him until the late 70s, when he was ultimately cleared by a polygraph test. The man was a former Illinois State student, and after talking to 30 to 50 people who knew him, Detective Sadler was completely convinced he was the guy. If this guy, the prime suspect named in 1996, and the man Siebel found are the same person, I wouldn't be overly surprised. Sure, he may have passed a polygraph test, but we all know they're not reliable, and I have to believe any solid detective would throw that right out the window when the same suspect starts coming back up 20 years later. This supposed individual also matched the composite drawing, which if I'm being honest, I wouldn't put a lot of stock in if it came down to the wire. The witness was about 20 to 30 feet away, and I do find it hard to believe that he got a super solid view of the guy. But if that sketch works coupled with other incriminating evidence, obviously I have to put some stock in it. There has been some speculation on if the murder was committed by the same person who attacked Carol in her bedroom a year and a half earlier. It's a solid thought, and I don't think it can be ruled out completely. This theory may even connect to the suspect or suspects looked at in the 70s and 90s, but ultimately we don't know that. A year and a half seems like a long time for retaliation, but there's always a chance the man saw Carol on the street and remembered her and decided to lash out. There are, of course, questions of time frame and motive. If the witness statement is to be 100% believed, the witness saw Carol being attacked between 10 and 10.15 p.m. That's 75 to 90 minutes after she would have got home if she went straight there after leaving her friend. Police also theorized that since a car was parked there in a no-parking zone, there was always a chance that Carol had been with her attackers in the car prior to the incident. It's also anyone's guess where the three could have been, or even just Carol by herself. The question of motive comes into play as well. Robbery has been discounted due to the fact that Carol's purse and money were still present. The question of sexual assault has also been discounted, but also not confirmed medically, seemingly due to the fact that it was cold out and there were two attackers and not one. According to RAIN, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, 90% of rape and sexual assaults are committed by one person. So this thought process may hold some water. As far as it was too cold out, that's probably up to debate depending on the attacker. There was also the theory from investigators that the disrobing of her was just a distraction for another crime. Unless someone is arrested, we will never know for sure. Unfortunately, this also isn't the only case I've ever seen from that time frame where signs of sexual assault weren't looked for, despite the victim being found in such a position. So sadly, I'm not completely surprised testing didn't happen. One thing I do want to note, and for the record, I'm not an expert by any means, but a lot of the time, it seems, like when you hear about deaths involving a harsh attack or beating like this, they're usually rage-driven. Not to sound repetitive, but we don't have a lot to go off here, but I don't think it's any stretch that whatever capacity Carol had in involvement with the two men, it very well could have been the murder was never the original goal, but they were angry enough that something set them off, which led to the heinous attack. Railroad tracks are not far from where Carol was attacked, so it's not unlikely that they found the piece of rail tie laying around nearby. There's a lot of questions, but not a lot of answers. One thing is known for sure, though. 
a young woman who wanted nothing more than to stay behind for a bit before going home so she could buy Christmas presents and bring a little extra holiday cheer to her family, didn't get to go home and celebrate. And 46 Christmases later, we still don't know why. That's 46 Christmases where someone who took a life from this world has gotten to celebrate, all while a dark, sad shadow has loomed over the family of Carol Rofstad, who wonder why someone had to take away one of their greatest gifts from them. Some things have changed since 1975. Fell Street is now Fell Avenue, and the Delta Zeta Sorority House on Fell has been torn down and an apartment building stands in its wake. Those changes, though, will never alter the tragedy that happened there. A daughter, sister, and a friend with a bright future was brutally attacked in that spot. And though she showed her strength by fighting for two days, she was ultimately taken from this world, and no amount of change will fill that dark hole. Carol's parents have both since passed away, but Carol still has siblings, friends, and sorority sisters who wish to see justice done. Carol Rostad's case is one of the oldest unsolved cases in Illinois. Despite that, there's never been much awareness around it outside of the state. We can change that. As always, I encourage you to share this podcast or any other such sources you may care to find and keep her name out there. I'll have the suspect composite on my social media accounts. Share it. If the perpetrator is in another state, someone completely unaware of Carol's murder may recognize him. It's never too late to spread awareness and possibly help move justice along. If you have any information on the murder of Carol Rofsted, please contact the normal police department at 309-454-9526 or Crime Stoppers of McLean County at 309-828-1111. If you're looking for additional information, the Bloomington Pantograph and the Illinois State Vedette has the most coverage. The Pantograph stuff is archived and behind paywalls, but I will provide a link to the vedette stuff in the show notes. If you wish to let me know what you think happened, have case suggestions or comments, or just want to follow me and the show on social media, I can be found on Instagram at Midwest Mystery Files, Twitter at Files Midwest, and on Facebook by searching for Midwest Mystery Files. You can also email me at MidwestMysteryFilesPod at gmail.com. I do also post photos and sometimes links relative to each case on social media, mainly on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and now Spotify, please feel free to rate and review the show. This helps make the show more visible in searches and more importantly, helps bring attention to the cases I cover. Thank you to all who have done so already. Take care, everyone, and I will see you all next time.